It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I am really looking forward to talking about the subject matter of staying calm and addressing feelings like overwhelm and stress and burnout, the emotions that seem to be so common. I feel like in the last few years, people in general seem much more comfortable admitting that they feel these tough emotions. And with my guest Shonda today, this is her specialty. And I would love to begin off the conversation with asking you, if you observe this a lot, have you seen a shift in the way that people talk about challenging emotions and discussing them more openly than they used to? Hmm, that's a great question. I think I've been so immersed in this world for a couple of decades that I probably don't see the dramatic shift. I don't see the dramatic shift in the talk about stress or overwhelm or busyness. I see more a shift in talking about more mental health, that it, you know, destigmatizing mental health, which is amazing and wonderful, which is a part of that. So, and maybe just being more explicit that it is mental health versus simply talking about stress or overwhelm. So to me, that's something that I've noticed. That's an interesting distinction, uh, stress and overwhelm versus mental health. I mean, I see them all on the same spectrum. So I'm curious, are you saying that people are pivoting from just talking about those emotions to acknowledging that this is part of mental health? Yeah, exactly. I think that's a piece of it. Yes, they're all intertwined. I mean, stress and overwhelm can exacerbate mental health issues and vice versa. So they're not separate entities for sure. However, Yes, I think just destigmatizing the fact that therapy is helpful and that people have clinical depression and clinical anxiety disorders and things like that, that they're not so secretive about it. I think we could have years ago masked it under I'm so stressed, I'm so overwhelmed versus now it's okay. It's okay to say I struggle with depression or anxiety. Well, it's getting to be okay, let's say. Absolutely. I think it's helpful when people say those things. It's definitely been the case for me. I feel like removing a lot of that shame or, or reducing, I should say. Shame still seems to linger. But especially on social media, there's been a shift that I've noticed on platforms like Instagram. I felt like it started there, but definitely on TikTok where I've shifted to as my primary social media platform and how openly many people discuss their struggles and not in the sense that I used to feel on Instagram where perhaps it was a little performative or trendy to talk about those emotions. On TikTok, I mostly feel like people are talking about these things because it helps them feel closer to one another. And perhaps they feel like they have permission to do it because other people have done it. And there's just like this building upon momentum. And I'm curious if you felt a ripple effect from what you've noticed on social media. Does this impact you as well? Well, I suppose I see it a little bit in my practice, but I've been in that world of therapy and psychotherapy for 
so long, again, that it's people are coming to me at that point where they're acknowledged that they need help. And so by that point, I don't know. So I don't see it dramatically in my work in particular. And I'm old. So I'm not old. I'm just kidding. But I'm older. So I am not on TikTok yet. I've resisted TikTok. So I can't speak to that. But I think just across the media in general, it's been very heartening to see celebrities, influencers come out and even famous names in sports will come out and just own it, especially men, because there is still such a stigma around men. I work primarily with women and that's always been my specialty for a number of years. And once in a while, I'll have a man come to me. Now I do more coaching than I do therapy or take new new, uh, clients, but I'll have somebody and they'll be like, well, do you work with men? And I'm like, you know what? The men who come to me are the most amazing men because I am very clear about, I work with women. And so I get the coolest, most amazing men who aren't afraid of their masculinity. But having said that, there are so many out there who are still have bought into the culture that it's not okay for men to go to therapy, for men to struggle and admit that they, they're dealing with any of these things. I find that so interesting that there's still that stigma there. There's still resistance. And of course, for me as a woman... I can't relate to that, that I can't relate to what it's like to grow up in that culture of masculinity or the pressures that comes from families, from just different backgrounds, different places that you're at. I mean, there's so many nuances that impact how we relate to other people, how we feel about ourselves and what we're expressing. In fact, I had a guest on the show recently who... (laughs) brought up just how we look at life through so many different perspectives based on our childhoods. And that's an interesting subject matter to talk with you about because you focus a lot on mothers. And so they're not only caring for their own mental health, but their children as well. And I'd love to hear some of your perspective on that. Uh, Well, it's the whole nature nurture discussion, and we can't completely take the nurture piece out. How were we nurtured? What did we get? What did we not get? What were our influences growing up? It is just so ingrained in us. And often we don't recognize it until we are full-blown adults ourselves. And then sometimes we still don't. So it's all about awareness. And the more awareness we have in general, the more choice we have with what we want to change, what we appreciate and like about where we're going or how we're parenting and what we would like to change and do differently. So yeah, it's hugely influential how we're raised. And sometimes we can just automatically repeat the same patterns. And then sometimes we are so hell-bent on not repeating the same patterns that we swing way over to the other side. We overcorrect sometimes. So there's a whole lot of room in there. Ultimately, when I work with moms and parents, there's so much pressure we put on ourselves to do it perfectly, to do it well, because it matters so much. And that's a beautiful thing. And yet I always say good enough is great because when we're holding ourselves to that perfection, perfectionistic standard, it can paralyze us and it can really get in our way. And so to just know that our intentions are good if we're doing the best we can, it's pretty great often. Those statements are true and relatable. And part of what I was excited to chat with you about is this burnout that many people are feeling. And I wonder if the pressure of being perfect, of being good enough even, are leading people in mass to feel burnt out because they're pushing themselves beyond a limit or maybe just carrying a big mental burden. Yes, yes, and yes, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's perfectionism. It is the hustle culture. It is comparisonitis. 
And it is comparisonitis in terms of us comparing our insides to people's outsides, right? What it looks like, what we think their lives look like. And as a psychotherapist, I've had the inside scoop for a long time to know that these amazing, successful people can walk into my office. I show up on a call and I'm like, I know they are struggling with just as many things as the rest of us, even though it looks so amazing from the outside. So that for me personally, I can recognize that and still can get caught up in seeing when I go on social media, for instance, what it looks like and why am I not there or why am I not able to do all of this all of the time? So many factors go into it, for sure. It's so helpful every time you hear someone say, I go through this too, (laughs) even though it seems obvious, right? Because again, people are talking about these things and yet there's something going on with our brains where we can simultaneously know something to be true, such as I'm not the only one who feels this. And yet there's like a little voice saying, yes, you are. (laughs) You are the only one and you should be ashamed about this. What are some practices that can work for people to handle those multiple voices and experiences in their brain? Right. So I kept coming back to awareness and mindfulness. If we're going to just be just talk really basic about what mindfulness is, it's being aware of what's happening in the moment with an attitude of kindness and curiosity. And so the opposite of mindfulness is when we run on automatic pilot in our minds, we're either in the future, we're what ifing, we're running through our to-do list, imagining the worst or we're in the past, rehashing a conversation or a memory. So mindfulness is being in the moment as best we can, accepting it with an attitude of kindness. That's the part that often gets missed. So when we can have awareness of what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, that is where the power lies. Because what happens is if we're not aware of, I can be scrolling through, like I said, not TikTok, but Instagram, and I'll notice somebody and I'm thinking, wow, look what she's doing. Wow, I'm not doing that. How does she land that deal or that collaboration, whatever it is? I might automatically in my body, if I'm aware, feel a sinking in my stomach, maybe pressure in my chest. My thought is, what's wrong with me? I'm not doing that. And I might feel some jealousy, let's say that's the emotion. So, and then my next thought is now I'm a horrible person. Like I know this person or whatever, she's a nice person, but what's wrong with me that I'm so judgy and jealous. Then I can feel all kinds of emotions, body sensations, thoughts. So anytime I can recognize what is going on, that is power because I can name it. I can say, oh, there's a little bit of envy. There's some comparison going on there's jealousy, whatever it is. And then I can have a choice with what to do with it. I often can give myself a little bit of compassion. And I talk to people about putting our hands to our heart, you know, our chest space and taking a couple of deep breaths. And some people I've talked to are like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. That is so cheesy. And I'm like, yeah, it totally is cheesy. But I just invite you to try it (laughs) because it reminds us, first of all, it releases a little bit of oxytocin, which is the connecting sort of hormone. And it also reminds us like, hey, try to be a little kind to myself here as if I were to someone else. So it's awareness, it's naming it, we say name it to tame it so that we have a little bit of distance from it. Then what can I offer myself a little compassion? Can I how do I talk to myself as I would my best friend or someone I care about? How do I shift that narrative? How do I change that script, change that self talk? So it's those sorts of steps. And what I'm talking about part of what I want to mention if it's okay, is this triangle of awareness that I use a lot. We can use a mindful break called a triangle tune-in. And if you imagine the three points of a triangle correspond to our thoughts, our body sensations, and our emotions, and they impact each other really quickly. Like I was mentioning, I can see an image and boom, I am off and running. I am shameful. I am jealous. I'm, uh, and I'm feeling terrible. 
So that keeps going and going. If I interrupt it by just noticing one point in that triangle, feel that pressure in my chest or feel that in my stomach or what is here? What am I saying to myself? I then have that power to say, okay, now what? Now what do I want to do with this? What happens if I don't have any awareness of that is my next interaction with my kid or my husband or my whatever colleague, I'm like, I'm all snarky and I'm like, whatever. And so I just like on and on and on we go. So it really can interrupt all of this unpleasant stuff that shows up. And likewise, or I should say on the other side of that coin with the triangle of awareness, it also can help us really notice and savor beautiful moments, pleasant moments that we're having. So I can be walking outside to my car after a meeting, let's say, and I look up and I see the sun is shining and I hear the birds chirping and I feel the warmth of the sun on my face and I feel a cool breeze. I hear the leaves rustling. I'm in the Northeast. I mean, if I pay attention to what's happening in my triangle very briefly, I just locked in that memory, that moment. I savored that. And I can think about it later and I still can feel that relaxation in my body and maybe a little bit of calm sort of happiness going on. So it helps us survive (laughs) and kind of recognize and get through and cope with those unpleasant moments, but it also can help us notice and savor the beautiful moments. Shonda, I'm so grateful that you pointed out savoring and coping together. I don't think I've ever thought about it that way. And also another thing you said earlier that I want to circle back to is about (laughs) people having some resistance to doing a breathing exercise. And I actually found myself oddly in that place of resistance, just looking at the title of your book, Don't Forget to Breathe, which is odd for me and nothing to do with your book, but just something for me to notice. Like, I feel sometimes like annoyed when I have to focus on my breath. It's like sometimes the last thing I want to do. (laughs) And I'm curious, I can't be alone in that because you'd mentioned another example Why is it that something basic like, hey, don't forget to breathe can feel frustrating, triggering, irritating to somebody in the moment of tension? Yeah, well, I think it could be a couple of things. Number one is sort of like if somebody is like, hey, calm down. Oh, like that is the last thing you want to say to someone. That is the opposite of getting them to calm down. Trust me. So that's number one. It's not about calming down. And I think sometimes too, it's like, are you kidding me? One more thing to add to my to-do list. Now you want me to breathe. So that's it. But the whole point of all of the work I do, and I teach a lot of mindful breaks are these sort of pauses and reminders in the midst of our day. And that hence the title, don't forget to breathe. It's when we literally pause, stop what we're doing and take three deep breaths. It is radical. It feels so hard. It is like, are you kidding me? But otherwise, (laughs) we are breathing shallowly in our chests all day long. We're in this low-level fight or flight, which exhausts us, which causes us more stress, which we don't think as clearly and creatively. We tire out more easily. And it just causes us inflammation and disease over time in our bodies. Like It's a phenomenon. So by pausing, which feels like, really, you're going to tell me to remind me to do this? Yes, I am, because we don't do this just take those full breaths. We calm down our physiology. We calm down our nervous system. We send a signal to our brain that there's no need for fight or flight, that everything's okay. It will be okay. And most of the time, that's the truth. Even though in our crazy busy world, it feels like everything's urgent and it's nonstop. So many great points. And it's funny because I think you hit the nail on the head. Sometimes being told to do something that's good for you can feel frustrating because it's just another thing. And it's laughable to me because we're breathing anyways. 
And as soon as you say that, my breath changes as soon as you say, don't forget to breathe. So I'm going to do it even if I don't want to. But it's like my brain associates that with like, oh, not another thing. And there were a couple of phrases in your work that I thought were so important to touch upon of this being overbooked and overburdened. And I really like those phrases because I use overwhelmed, stress, burnt out. But I think focusing on being overbooked can be really interesting. And maybe that ties into a reaction like I had of I'm overbooked and adding something as simple as breathing (laughs) intentionally into my moment feels frustrating. Is that because I already feel like I've taken on too much? Yeah, I mean, it's quite a statement in our lives. If we really feel like, are you kidding me? You want me to stop and take a few breaths? Like, I don't have time for that. But it's, we often feel that way. And I am there too sometimes. I get it. And also, I'm wondering some people are just rebels by nature and they're like, don't tell me what to do. You know, so knowing that about yourself too. And we all have to have our reasons as to why we want to do this. For some of us, it is, I want to notice my life. I want to not just be because I know how I operate. I am on the to-do list all the time. I like to get things done and that's how, and I'm on to the next and on to the next. I want to slow down a little bit. So I am aware of my life. Some people want to speed up a little bit. They need a push. They need some nudges. They need to be like going. And it's all knowing where we fall in these different continuums of all sorts of areas. It can be doing versus non-doing. It can be risk averse and risk takers. Some of us fall on those different ends of the the continuums. And so knowing which way, how do we get ourselves a little bit more into balance? And to me, that's what a lot of this is about. So I forget what your initial question was that I started to answer. You definitely answered it. It led me to something else related to do lists, because like you, I love to do lists. It helps me so much with managing my day. And I'm fully in charge of my day because I work for myself. Like I have clients, I am setting my own schedule every day. And I created that lifestyle because that works better for me than being on somebody else's schedule and all of that. But I still thrive with that to-do list because without it, I feel a bit out of sorts. And yet, even though I'm designing my own to-do list, I'm creating my own schedule, sometimes I look at my own list and think, ugh, I don't want to do these things. Why are they there? And I feel this simultaneous emotion of like, well, I can just move it. This is completely up to me. And then shame at the same time of, no, you should get this done. You put this on your list. You can't be a procrastinator. All these mentalities that many of us feel around laziness, for example, of perhaps those are leading us to adding more to our plates than we can actually handle. Do you find that to be true? Sure. And I just want to kind of pull out a few things that you were saying, terms I think that are important to talk about and distinguish, which are self-talk or the judging is what's wrong with you? Suck it up, buttercup. You're the one who put this on your own list. So that kind of thing. That's judging and that's negative self-talk. The difference between guilt and shame, and I think it's important to distinguish, is guilt is about a behavior, right? So I'm embarrassed or I wish I hadn't put that on my list. I feel guilty because I really don't want to do it. I don't want to meet with this person, even though I'm the one who reached out, whatever that is. That's guilt. Shame is I am a bad person. I am a bad mom. I am a bad entrepreneur, (laughs) whatever that is. I am disorganized in general and boom. And saying those kinds of things, like I always, whenever I say that to teach it, I feel like, oof, uncomfortable in my body. It's like toxic. I really can feel that. So 
we have to be really careful that we're shifting from shame to guilt. So it's not I am, but rather this behavior is, or sometimes I act in this way, because we're not acting in that way all the time. Because when we start to believe, when we fall into the shame, I am this or that, that's negative, then we give up. And it's sort of like, well, if I am awful, why would I even bother trying? Like, there's no point. It's very unmotivating versus, okay, this is an issue. I can act this way sometimes. I don't like it. So what can I do about it? And it's that sort of growth mindset versus a fixed mindset of, okay, there are things I can do to shift that behavior in the future. How can I go about it differently? I love that you touched upon growth mindset versus fixed mindset because I just completed a training because I'm working towards becoming a board certified well-being coach. And that was a big part of our initial training. I was looking at it over in preparation for my exam and thinking like, wow, there is such a big difference between those two. I'd love for you to share in your own words, like what is that difference between someone who's in that fixed mindset versus the growth mindset? Oh, it's so huge. It's so huge. It's about agency. It's about knowing that it's sort of one of those things Marie Forleo talks about everything is figure outable, which I love. And it's basically like, okay, I can be in a mess of a situation. I could have gotten myself into a mess of situation or just feel like things are really not going well. Okay. Can I acknowledge that? And now what is one action step I can take towards shifting out of this? One thing, one thing at a time, just knowing that I can, knowing that I can have some agency and make things different by acting. It's never going to turn out always the way we want it to. Of course, this is life. Things show up all the time and we're not always in control of everything. But to know that we have a large piece of control over a lot of things in our lives versus somebody who just feels like, ugh, helpless. It turns into learned helplessness. Nothing I can do about it. Stuck. This is the way it is. This is the way I am. Oh, well. I mean, oh, that breaks my heart. It is heartbreaking. I, I feel that too. And yet it's so common. And I would also love to hear from you, since you do both now, it sounds like therapy and coaching, what are the differences between the two? Because that's something I'm still working on articulating because there seems to be a lot of crossover, maybe gray areas. And since I'm now trained as a coach, I want to be mindful of what I'm not trained in because I'm not a therapist. So how do you clarify that with people when they're determining how they're going to work with you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It can get gray. And it's interesting. And sometimes in therapy as well, like you're saying with coaching is in therapy, we use coaching techniques, or I do. Often, how I see it is therapy is often about disorders. It's about you have an anxiety disorder, you have a panic disorder, you have OCD. I treat a lot of the stress related disorders and anxiety related disorders. And so that is different than I'm stuck. I'm kind of stuck. So I see coaching as you kind of have some basic tools, you're stuck at a point, you're feeling unfulfilled, but you're not really clinically depressed or dealing with clinical anxiety or those types of things. Thank you for articulating that because I feel like maybe clients are unsure about the difference. And sometimes it seems like coaches might be unsure. I think I was before I went through my program of training because there were a lot of things that I was doing that we're outside my scope of practice, really. And I think until you're trained in that and you become more aware, you can walk a fine line that can be a bit dangerous. And mental health is such an important, fragile thing that you could easily fall into the wrong hands if you don't really understand the difference. And I think also at the responsibility as a coach is understanding the difference 
and where you're best to refer someone out to a therapist or to another specialist. I want to go back to another definition too, unless you wanted to add something else to that. Yeah, just to say, and I think for coaches, therapists, anybody who's listening who might be in the helping profession in that way, ultimately it's knowing what we don't know and knowing when we feel uncomfortable. And again, checking in with our own awareness of this is feeling out of my comfort zone, my realm of understanding or expertise. And therefore, that's a pretty good sign. You need to refer someone. Absolutely. As I was brought up, the terms overbooked and overburdened, and we touched upon the overbooked side. I'm curious, is overburdened different from being overbooked in your eyes? I think there's a different, there's a nuance to that, right? That is different, which is because I could be overbooked to me is about literally my schedule that I have put too much on my plate. Um, overburdened is that feeling, that perception, because overburdened to you and overburdened to me is going to feel very different pieces to what that looks like overburdened to me might be caregiving. I'm overburdened. Somebody else might be fine. I might be overburdened with sleep deprivation. Hello, I'm not, I'm the worst with sleep deprivation. (laughs) And other people that I'm like marvel at, like, oh my God, how do you function like that? Not that I, you know, (laughs) I mean, we all want to sleep, but sometimes it's not under our control. So overburdened, I think is that perception. And sometimes if we're not feeling validated or in control to some degree, resentment can definitely breed resentment for sure. And some people struggle to set boundaries. And it seems like that can lead to being overbooked and overburdened. But that could also be the reason why you continue to feel those ways. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I teach a mindful break about boundaries, benevolent, badass boundaries, because for women especially, we tend to be taught from a very young age conditioned that not really taught the condition that everyone else, we need to take care of everyone else at the expense of ourselves. Like we come last, right? So after everyone else is taken care of and we got everything ticked off the list, oh yeah, if I have a little energy or time for myself, I'll get to that, <laughs> which often we don't. So if we're not more intentional about it. And so a lot of my work comes to how do we take that power for ourselves? And, and that's why I teach a lot of five minute mindful breaks because everybody can carve out five minutes somewhere in their day, but we have to give ourselves permission and prioritize ourselves. And so it's knowing a boundary is being crossed. Again, this is all about awareness and about teaching us to start to pay attention to our bodies because our body sensations clue us into so much information about emotions and thoughts. So when I feel uncomfortable in my body, when I feel tight, when I feel something in my stomach that's unpleasant, it's like, "Hmm, okay, what's up here, right? And that could be a boundary being crossed. And maybe I've completely allowed it my whole life and I've not been aware of it. So it's really not the other person's fault (laughs) that I've allowed them to step over a boundary because I've allowed it. But when I start to notice, hey, I don't think I like this. I want to shift this boundary. It's recognizing it. Again, giving ourselves permission to say like, it's okay that I don't like this and it's okay to change something. And how do we do that? How do we do that in an assertive way versus aggressive or passive, which is how we tend to communicate. So again, we're not taught this a lot of times coming back to childhood things. I can't tell you how many people I talk with who will be like, I didn't learn this. I didn't learn this in my family. I'm like, oh my gosh, 99% of us do not, trust me. And people go through their whole lives not knowing how to communicate assertively or mindfully. And when we're learning a new skill, we often overcorrect, right? So I know when I was definitely more passive, for sure, as a teenager, young adult, and I had to learn how to be assertive. So it felt super aggressive when I was just standing up for myself a little bit. And I always say that to, especially to women, if you're more passive, it's going to feel super aggressive. 
Likewise, some people just are a little bit more aggressive, but they need to tone it down a little bit. But being assertive is like, I'm taking care of me and I care about you. It's almost like, can we get a win-win? But I'm going to know that it's okay to take care of myself and ask for what I need or set a boundary. And to know that people aren't always going to like that. Sometimes they're going to be really explicit about not liking it. Sometimes they're just going to bump up against, you're going to get resistance because you're setting a new boundary. And to know that people sometimes will adjust. If there are people that we have in our lives on a regular basis, they will adjust so often. So that was a lot about boundaries, but it's super important, especially with women. So knowing when something comes up, if we're offered something, we are conditioned to say, yes, sure, I'll help you. Sure, I'll do that. Sure, sure. Because it feels pretty bad to say no. And I can still struggle with that too. I can say like for speaking engagements, I have people who will come to me about doing free speaking engagements a lot of the time. And I'll be like, well, I'd love to help you out. But if I said yes to everybody who doesn't want to pay me to (laughs) to do a speaking engagement. So kind of what I've come up with is often I will say one, it depends on the organization. I have to really love the organization and I might do one free speaking engagement a quarter. And that's my limit. And I can't do more than that. Then I feel resentful, right? That it feels like they've crossed a boundary with me that does not feel good for me. That's a hard one. It is hard. And thank you for providing that example, because I think making this big shift in a society that has often taught women to not be assertive, while there's a lot of steps that you can take to change that about yourself, it's still really challenging. And sometimes not even having an example, going back to what I was saying earlier about how much of a shift it's made through social media, people talking openly about their struggles. I think the same can be true about people sharing specific examples about how to do things. Certainly for me, I get so stuck when I don't have an example. I get stuck when I feel like I'm the only one making some sort of a change. I don't know who to turn to, to figure out how to do it. Just even hearing something like, a once a quarter, that's my boundary. That's the maximum I will do. This is what I will offer. And I'm going to stand firm in that. So how else do people learn how to make these big shifts when perhaps they felt like they've either been conditioned to do things a certain way and it's hard to break free of that, but there's this looming feeling of societal pressure that may be fake because I feel like a lot of times once you can break through, you'll see many examples like you just gave and realize not everybody acts this way and you don't have to. But there's still almost like those voices we were talking about before. It's almost like a fake layer in our society of what we should be doing versus what's actually good for us and finding that confidence to cross that barrier. How do you do that? (laughs) I think incrementally, very, very slowly and with fits and stops and starts and feeling like we do it well sometimes and really not well other times. I mean, as I've come to this with my example with speaking engagements, there are times where I felt like, oh, that felt so bad. Like I did not handle that well, or I did not say that well. And so we learn, we make mistakes and we figure it out. So it's to know that, but ultimately to trust ourselves. Most of us are really good people trying to do the best we can. We want to help. We want to do things for others. And so if we start to feel like this is too much, it's probably for a really good reason. And we need to pay attention and honor that. And also look to role models, find role models of people who are talking about this. You can look at them and say, she is 
amazing. She's a helping person, if that's what you like, or whatever that is that you aspire to. What comes to mind when I'm talking about this is like Michelle Obama. I don't know her personally, but (laughs) I have this sense that she likes to do good and has some really strong boundaries too of what she will tolerate, will not tolerate. And I respect that. So how can you find those role models that you could say like, how do I be a little bit more like her in that way? That's wonderful advice. Since we talked about the power of working with a coach or a therapist, I'd also love to know what you advise for somebody if they're experiencing some of the challenges that we've talked about today, which again, I think most people are. How does somebody decide whether a coach would be a good fit for them versus therapy? Mm, Right. I think I would start by, I mean, you can always have conversations. You can always reach out to different therapists or coach and have book a discovery call. Just ask those basic questions on an email, that kind of thing. Often, if you're feeling like it's really impacting your functioning, then I would say it's likely that you need some therapy. If you're feeling like, I kind of got this life thing, I'm okay. Things are pretty good. It's just something's missing or I'm stuck or like that feels more like a coach. I mean, it's a good question because I think it's definitely individual, obviously, and you have to assess. But if you're unsure, have a conversation with someone. That's fantastic advice because I think some people just get stuck even trying to make the decision. (laughs) And then they get in their head about like all the barriers, like how much is this going to cost? Is this going to be accessible? Is it going to take a lot of time? I mean, even getting to that stage of support can be such a big challenge. And that's why I'm so grateful for people like yourself who have podcasts and you're sharing the message based on your expertise. And you have these wonderful books that you've created. And speaking of which, I'd love to wrap up our conversation with maybe a final tip or a group of tips about these five-minute mindfulness breaks that you're bringing up. Just something that someone can leave this conversation with that makes it feel like it's doable and they can do something in a small amount, but have a big ripple effect from them starting five minutes from now. Right, definitely. So the mindful breaks are all about how do we step out of automatic pilot, the opposite of being mindful and come back into the moment so that we are more aware of our lives, we're more in control of where we place our attention and how we respond to situations and where we're going. So it can be as simple as taking a coffee mindful break every morning. So you have your coffee, you have your tea, whatever you're drinking in the morning, and often we're multitasking and we slug it back and we're like, did I even drink that at all? (laughs) Until you look and see it's gone. Instead, what if you, again, this is radical and I'm going to tell you to stop, stop and feel the mug, feel the warmth, smell the aroma, use your senses, take that first sip, drink that cup of coffee and feel the warmth through your body. You can do it for 20 seconds. You can do it for five minutes. You can stretch it out, but it's a very different way of being. So all this is about is interrupting that fight or flight, interrupting that automatic pilot, stepping off that hamster wheel on a regular basis that we're on all day long and being here for our lives. And so start with one, start with one mindful break and do it every day for a couple of weeks. It starts to become a habit. That's what I do every morning when I drink my coffee or whatever that is. And so then I don't have to remember. And then I can just stack on another mindful break for a couple of weeks. And then before I know it, my day is sprinkled with these mindful breaks and I am more aware and nobody has to tell you to don't forget to breathe. So (laughs) you don't have to feel rebellious or resistant to it. I'm so grateful for the way that you share this information. It's brought me peace of mind. You've reminded me to breathe. (laughs) Despite like my resistance saying, no, I don't want to remember to breathe. (laughs) 
It's so funny to share that out loud, to laugh at it, because I think that actually helps someone like me let go of resistance is to acknowledge like I feel resistant to something so basic as breathing. That's kind of funny. And now that I acknowledge it as funny, I am more open to doing it. And sometimes you need to go through those barriers. As you brought that up, because what I say to women or people too that I teach is that definitely have a sense of amusement with this. We take ourselves, I'm speaking for myself, I can take myself so seriously. And just let it be fun. Let it be experimental and playful and just see what happens. That's it. Just investigate. Don't take my word for it. Try it out and see. And I guarantee pretty much that in a couple of weeks, you will notice a little bit of a difference. What a wonderful note to end on. And something so important this time of year, we're in the month of December with the holidays. We're coming up on January, February. I mean, it feels like the next three months can be a big challenge. But of course, we face life challenges throughout the year. So thank you so much for sharing something with us in a way that feels from a place of ease and a place of simplicity. And like you said, that fun is so important and the experimenting, knowing that you can do something in a short amount of time and examine it from many different perspectives. I loved your triangle piece of advice too. That was so lovely. You shared so much. And of course, you have even more in the book that just came out, Don't Forget to Breathe. (laughs) And your other book, which is targeting mothers specifically, right? It's Breathe Mama Breathe. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It was great to be with you, Whitney. Absolutely. And for the listener, I will link to the books, to the podcast, to Shonda's website where you can get in touch and learn more. That's all in the description underneath your podcast player, as well as over in the show notes at wellevator.com which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Thanks again for listening. And thank you, Shonda, for being with us today. Thanks, Whitney. It was fun to chat with you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.